So welcome to the big So welcome to the May 22nd meeting of the Housing Recreation and Transportation Committee. Um, clerk, could we please take the roll for attendance? Yes, on the call of the roll, uh, Commissioner Long absent, Commissioner Adair present, Adair present, Commissioner Terrell present, Terrell present, Commissioner Nguyen present, President, Commissioner Anish absent, and Chair Miller. All right, present. Great. So we did receive word uh, from Commissioner Wong 72 hours in advance that she will not be at today's meeting. I believe she's on a family vacation. And then um, I did receive word today from uh, Commissioner Anish that uh, she is having to take care of some family members. So she is also unable to make today's meeting. Do we know how many, I, I guess it doesn't, does Anne still have unexcused or excused absences that she can use? Let me double check. Okay. Either way, because uh, if we do vote to excuse it and she's already hit the maximum, it's fine because it'll just be invalid, right? She just has one excuse. I see. Okay, so we can still excuse it. Are there any motions? Motion to excuse. Commissioner Long, Commissioner Anish, seconded. Great, so we have a motion by um, Commissioner Adair to excuse Commissioner Long and Commissioner Anish, seconded by Commissioner um, We'll do a voice vote on that motion. All in favor say aye. Any opposed nay. Great, so with that, that motion passed. Was there any public comment on that? Uh, Chair, Okay, so with, if the, since there's no public comment, public comment is closed and the motion passed. Great. Okay, can we please call item number two? So is if can we remain on mute for present? Thank you. Um, all right, sorry for that. Um, item number two is communications. The Minas World Philanthropy Commission's Housing Recreation and Trans Committee participated in this meeting in person with remote access. With remote access for public comment. The Commission recognizes that public access to city services is essential and invites public participation in the following ways. First, public comment will be available on each event on its agenda. Comments or opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available via phone call by calling 415-655-0001, meeting IMT 2483-388-9209, then pound and then pound again, or you can join us online via the WebEx system. When you're connected, you can hear me in discussions, but you can be muted and then listening with only 
When your item of interest comes up, please dial star three to be added to the speaker's line if you've called in, or if you're joining us through web WebEx, you may also raise your hand in the app. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing and write it the following ways. You can email them to the Youth Commission at youthcom at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to the commissioners and will be included as part of the official file. You may also send your written comments to via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall at 1 Dr. Carlson Reed at the Place, Room 345, SM California, at 94102. And Chair, that concludes the Thank you for that. And our next item is the, uh, could you please call item number three? Yes, item number three is approval of the agenda. Perfect. So take a moment to look over today's agenda and I'll take any motions. Which come to approve? Seconded. So, a motion uh, to approve today's agenda by Commissioner Wynn, seconded by Commissioner Adair. Uh, is there any public comment? Chair, uh, you have no public comment. So, seeing none, public comment is closed. Is there any discussion? Hearing none, uh, all in favor, please say aye. Any opposed, say nay. So with that, the agenda for today is approved, and can we please call item number four? Yes, item number four is approval of the minutes from the April 24th meeting. Perfect. So take a second to look over those minutes. Uh, I'll take a motion for certainty. Okay, so we have a motion to approve by Commissioner Charles, seconded by Commissioner Wynn on the approval of the minutes from April 24th. Is there any public comment? Uh, sure, you have no public Seeing none, public comment is closed. Is there any discussion? Hearing none, uh, we'll take a voice vote. All in favor, please say aye. Any opposed, say nay. So the minutes of April 24th are approved, and could we please call item five? Yes, item number five is public comment on matters on today's agenda. Under the jurisdiction of the Youth Commission's HRC committee, but not on today's agenda, members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this matter can either line up at the door. You can press start three now if you're on the call, or if you are joining us via WebEx, you can raise your hand. Your key to begin your comments will be you've been unmuted if you've called in, or you'll hear two beeps on the if you join the meeting via WebEx. And share you have the comment. Great. So with that, we'll close public comment. Can we please call item number six? Yes, item number six is presentations with our first presentation on youth and stay homelessness with HSH and the second presentation on fair enforcement with SWSPA. Uh, great. So I'd like to welcome uh, the Department of uh, Homelessness and Supportive Housing. Um, thank you guys so much for being here today. Do you want to introduce yourselves quickly? Hi, my name is Sabrina. Thank you for being here for a month. I'm a legislative analyst. And good evening. My name is Dylan Schneider. I'm the manager of legislative affairs at HSH. I use her pronouns. And thank you all for inviting us. Yes, thanks for being here today. Um, I don't know if y'all just want to dive into your presentation and then we'll have some time for questions and discussion afterwards. But thank you so much for being here. Of course, we'd love to. Um, so this seems especially pertinent today given that your item number seven is about our strategic plan. Uh -huh. So today we are going to talk to you about HSH's service for you. 
mostly focusing on our home and cluster response system, which makes sense to speak today of the work we love to help. And then also to give you a little bit of information about Next slide, please. So our department, just to give you a little bit of background, was launched in August 2016, and it's really meant to consolidate the programs um, that address these. So that includes programs making services agencies and health. Those were all rolled up under one centralized department with the mission of making the in San Francisco rare, free, and And every night, the system serves over 15,000 people every night and day through the home system. One of the core groups that we serve is communicating people together. And this group is sometimes called the K, and actually, this will be. And there are some people who are unable to serve. Luckily, this number is quite small for family and children, so we don't think there must be a distinct Next slide, please. To give you a sense of overall homelessness and safety, the most recent estimate of people experiencing homelessness was done during the 2022 time count, which provides the best estimate of people experiencing homelessness on one and the fit count found that there was about a 3.5 decrease in overall homelessness and a 15% decrease in unshared um, from the 2019 count, which was the increase. We also found that there was just over a thousand youth under the age of 25, but 952 of them And that's a much higher percentage of unsheltered in the population than the actual people that are Of note, 86%. And 38% for LGBTQ, which is also a much higher than adults in the And you can see there's actually been a pretty significant increase in youth homelessness since 2017, with about 1,300 people in 2017, down to about 1,070. Slide, please. So, what resources are available? Um, you can see from our newly registered on your website, there's about 260 shelters that have been provided for youth ages 15 to 27. And we have a pretty good uh, utilization of the National Food Center and Judge. There is some things in the additional housing, as you can see on that slide. And these programs were particularly impacted by the and we've seen occupancy in this country's grow over the last few months down to the level of about 70 percent where we see you continue to One thing I'd like to flag here is that this, this shelter includes 75 beds at the Northern Home Communication Center, which is one of the centers that's really focused on serving the middle, so the middle of the river will be in the four kids. That's partners for positions and how to live. Next There were some questions from this group about some of the specific areas in the program. So they wanted to get some areas in these slides. One of the things that each stage has been trying to do over the last couple of years in particular is opening new semi and So drawing on the left of the shelter was something for these responsible for bringing to. We found that a lot of people were interested in accepting children as if they were able to go into a private location where they have a phone number and um, One of the questions we got from the commissioners was why do people refuse services? And one of the things that we just trying to do is 
try to offer more services to people so that they want more. One of those things we really are interested in which is having free communications. We also opened a safe parking site in the community. Another question from the commissioners was whether or not the name of the business were used in the This is a place where people can stay in the parties or in the business and services. And it's a really important intervention since, again, a lot of people who are living in the parties might have to wait for few services. Additionally, we reopened a lot of events closed during the pandemic, including the Rehabilitation Center. Again, which is most of those packages to reopen. And that was a good change in the Rehabilitation Center to be a center that's focused on serving people's And then finally, in terms of how to make access and for people, we are also reducing the cell phone program right now the books don't really want to access shelter to reach for themselves in this story potentially and this summer there's going to be a much more streamlined program so we have issues. So switching gears to housing, by the numbers we have more than 300 units of space for supportive housing, meaning that it's a, a building where the hopefully has to be used And then we also have staff of those, we have about 175 emergency housing vouchers, which is like a federal section voucher. There's also about 50 scattered site building support vouchers, which is a local voucher, and then about 400 and about 3,000 of those to capacity. That ties out so far, this is like every month, even placing about a little So people will be able to reach transport. But I don't have the data just for youth, but all households place into housing over the last fiscal year. About half of the households give them shelter or traditional And then about a third came from Next, please. One of the exciting things that we, uh, me and Dylan's team on the legislative side, side and many other people have on in the last several years is leveraging state and government dollars to acquire sites from COVID 19. And two of those sites that we've acquired the two housing sites that opened in 2022 are pictured on the slide as the top two buildings here. It is the property at 5630 Mission Street called Mission Inn. And then the property at 3061 16th Street, all the rest of the building. And those are about seven streets. So that's seven And we are also currently proposing to acquire a site at 1174 Street, which is a beautiful building because it is in construction and we're applying for another state. The post acquisition is going to be here in June or July, and we would absolutely love to get some support and if you are interested in coming to the ground hall and then I will send around some information about my access to the city. So, if you have any other questions, see if anyone would be interested in showing up or calling in. Next slide, please. In terms of how you're thinking of access to these shelter housing resources, that access is going to be 
there's multiple locations across the city. You can get much more information about our and of note, there are a few of these organizations that are really focused on serving that LGBT compliance community. So, the LGBT Center, and we are impossible to be You can also get services through the and then we'll eventually be able to cycle into the adult system or find basis to use the Additionally, there's some help available through that self-emergency retailing spectrum for the housing is here. And then unemployment have two key places in the back in the very house where you have to wrap it up, I want to talk to you a little bit about the way of which is interesting to There are five main things that I explain. The first is to decrease on and the actual thing there is reducing the number of people who are unsolved by 15 by 50 percent. So building on that 15 percent reduction that we saw in the last few years, and also reducing the total number of people who are unsolved by 15 percent. The second goal is to reduce the weeks. We don't have specific, um, we don't have specific charts for this goal, we just decided to use it for all the goals to demonstrate really measurable reductions in initial activities as well as the activities, both in the outcomes of the programs that the city administered and in the population of the Next, we'll need to actively support at least 30,000 people to make from homelessness into alternative housing, which should be supportive housing, affordable housing, marketing housing. And we are trying to ensure that 80% of people who have homelessness, so we do budget for permanent housing, do not reduce And then to stop the development of the marketplace, we are moving to a standard for digital services to at least 18,000 people in So to achieve those goals, there's a lot to be done in the homelessness response system and beyond the replacement partners. We're looking to set up the system, but we're also looking to focus on strategic questions. So, advancing racial equity and homelessness, strengthening our response to shelter homelessness, increasing success, preventing, and enhancing system And I know I think that one description area really speaks to some of the questions that we got from the commissioner in advance in this presentation about systems for preventing. So this last bullet here includes nonprofit accountability. So tightening up the program and still monitoring to make sure that we're leveraging our data and taking a look at outcomes to make sure that our And then in addition, we're also working to support members in general. It's really essential that they are a diverse set of nonprofit providers from different communities of different sizes and different strength and skills. And we are hoping to see that investments from the budget in the nonprofit community will jeopardize this important for that value. And then finally, um, I know we also got some questions about the business for control. I'm happy to have a question. So if you want to bring them about what's the most 
in terms of what those resources are going to look like in terms of to meet those needs, we estimate that we're going to need an additional 4,300 slots for patient. We're going to need over a thousand patient tickets, and we're going to need about 3,200. Yeah, we really appreciate um, taking the time to present and, you know, the responses to the questions we already sent, and now I want to open it up to any commissioners who have questions um, for HSH based on the presentation. I I would just add, you know, I think in terms of the providers that serve this population, not just those experiencing homelessness, but kind of the whole gamut, they all communicate a lot. So I know that like Blackfin has some outreach workers dedicated. I know Homeless Group Alliance has those. We have um, bi-monthly calls with all of our providers that we fund where we're sharing updates all the time and taking questions and asking for agenda setting. So as new resources come up or there's new ways to refer folks into programs, we're always sharing that out with providers um, to make sure that, you know, if they're serving youth that might know another youth that's experiencing homelessness, there's that word of mouth as well. And then in addition to everything Brent said, you know, we also work really closely with 311 and 211 to make sure that if folks are coming into the city and calling those public resource lines, they, you know, have the latest and greatest information or can direct them to an access point HSH and the homeless population to get there. But if you all have additional ideas on how we can get resources out, we would love to hear that. So we're always, you know, I know we try to do a lot and it's never quite, right? We're, not, we're never going to reach everything. Um, do you, uh, 
is the privacy so privacy to public housing is there a big difference in cost between two in terms of perspectives that we have Conversation. I think before we used to say congregate shelter is much cheaper. Um, and what we've learned from COVID is that we need the same amount of services at all of our centers. It should be the navigation centers are like a Cadillac of services, and everything else is like a lower level. Like everyone who's at any one of our shelters needs the same equitable access to services and includes like housing navigation and coordinated entry assessments, peace management. The access to DPH clinicians. And so what we've been doing and why it's harder for us to say what's more or less expensive is we've been expanding those services to all of our centers, all of our shelters, I should say. And so that's made it cost a little bit more comparative than it was in the past. Thank you. Love to ask more about the uh, transitional housing, specifically our pandemic. But what are you, what are you guys doing right now? Get the occupancy levels up sort of to the same range as the other shelter options that you have when you can get sort of standing in play. Um, actually, that's a great question. I mean, I think COVID obviously really impacted our transitional housing programs because so many of them were like double beds in one unit, and so we had to kind of slash that occupancy in half. And then that was exacerbated by staffing challenges. Larkin runs the majority of our transitional housing They had a really hard time getting their staffing levels um, up to be able to support those programs while doing everything else that we were doing during the pandemic. And so our staff has been working really closely hand in hand with them and other transitional housing providers to really make sure that we have appropriate staffing, that we're tracking and monitoring, and that we're kind of fully transitional housing fully under our shelter portfolio, but I think we'll give it more attention from our staff than it's had. It kind of has existed in both places, housing and shelter, since the beginning of the department. And so I think by kind of folding it into shelter, it'll have more attention from shelter staff that are used to having kind of like conversations about occupancy and agencies um, on a shelter, right? That's, that's in flux more than housing because folks are turning over and moving to more permanent places. So, I mean, we've already seen um, occupancy jump quite a bit in transitional housing over the last few months. And I would expect we'll see it you know, back up in the 80, 90 percentile like our other shelter programs. And it's, sorry, I keep, I don't, I keep not turning to this way. <laughs> oh, um, I guess I was just curious. We met um, actually uh, our LGBTQ plus task force of these youth commission, oh my gosh, um, met with some of the like, service providers such as um, Market Street, um, youth services, and the LGBT 
or I guess, is it just called the center? The center, yeah. And um, something they brought up to us a lot was um, the coordinated entry system. So, like, is it is is it true that like um, young people, like I guess, uh, or like trans transitional age youth, like eighteen to twenty seven, go through the same uh, coordinated entry system as adults? Like, are like for the assessment, is it the same? There's a population specific assessment for youth. Um, I think where this gets tricky is if a youth goes to an adult access point, they may be given an adult. So I think that's some of the confusion. I will also note, and I think you all are probably aware of this, but we've been doing a lot of work over the last year um, hosting a work group to do a coordinated entry design because we have heard from not only those providers, but clients of our system and other providers that you know, there are there are flaws with coordinated entry that need to be addressed in terms of equity, in terms of the intrusiveness of the assessments and how they're measured, et cetera. So we just completed the second recommendations that I believe from that redesign process, and we're going to be working on implementing some of those recommendations. So I think that will hopefully get to that. Um, you know, in terms of making sure that you go to an adult access point staff there know how to say, hey, do you also know you're eligible? For this youth population specific assessment, like let me pin to it. Like I think some of it is just training staff and the wealth of information they need to know to help support folks. Yeah, because something we heard a lot um, in talking with them is that like you know youth like maybe don't have like a specific history of like you know being homeless or other things. So because of that, they're scoring you know lower and potentially not qualifying for like you know services that they may otherwise you know, qualify for. So just making sure like that they're being directed um, and that, you know, if this is a problem with the system, which it sounds like it is, that it's being addressed is very important. And I guess like another like, question I have is another big concern they have was around like the definition of like homelessness. So something they brought up is, you know, especially for the LGBTQ plus community, you know, many states you've seen it in the news, like are having very, you know, anti-LGBTQ plus laws so people are coming to california but when they're coming here you know they don't actually necessarily have a place to stay and they're trying to get services but they're not meeting like the definition of being homeless like in california do you know like what that what they're referring to there one quick thing on your first question you know about so someone scores but the youth resources and thresholds do So I think that's one of the reasons we have to in opposition and coming online and that will lower the second question. I do not actually have the answer to that. We have a Definitions of homelessness in the in San Francisco document that is people go to complete and then completely it's just been a lot of confusion about that. That's because we went on the thing that from the agency can print up there's in 2019. I don't know if it's a question, but I don't actually. I'm curious if you could share more and I just one of the providers. I would just I I I would not be shocked if this has already been raised to our programs team. Um, because it sounds familiar to things I've heard in the past, but I don't know enough about 
what is in that definition that they feel like might be of service. I see. Yeah, I think one of the things that they mentioned is that you would have needed to be homeless in the state of California for seven days before you qualify for services. And yeah, no worries. Um, so that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know if that just needs to you know, get out to the service providers. And I was just trying to see too, like if you were aware of that issue. But do you know? So is the definition like set by some like state or like federal like funding program, or it's set here locally by HSH, like whatever the definition is? Like, are are y'all the ones like who are kind of able to like set that or? But my understanding is that we try to look at it, so you can just Just like based on that, you would have had to, you know, spend a night, like, you know, at least, you know, maybe it's not, you know, on the street homeless, but, you know, like in escrow, in a vehicle, you know, in a friend's house, whatever, before you would qualify for service. Yes. Okay. Interesting. And I guess um, maybe my next question is um, you talked a little bit about like um, prevention just now and also in your like presentation, but I'm curious, like, what specifically, like, do you provide civic support, like, paying people's, you know, like, rent or, like, mortgage or, like, what does that look like? You know, like, if somebody is not, you know, homeless yet, but, you know, maybe, maybe they lost their job, you know, they're on the brink of becoming homeless. What, what, what are the prevention services? So I got to 
um, and the, the providers work to make sure that they can to receive the um, there's also the flexible financial system available for that program, which can be anything that's realistically related to the So, we need to go through the funds and use the bonds or any events and you can from the state of the So, that's the big kind of thing. And then there's a whole thing assisted pension, and that's for people who have not yet experienced one of those or can't see. Right now, through the state of Mississippi, that's a minister in the city in the SMP, which is the emergency assistance program. And that provides that future in the That is the main suite of potential resources that HBA offers. It is a picture of a child person, simple resources like coaching and other things that might tie in the but right now, their focus is just to stand up that program, the meetup program, and there was no dollar that was worried to help people who still need by some of the other things dealing with the pandemic and the COVID and the possibility. Perfect. Do any other commissioners have additional questions? Yeah. One, two, three. Okay. My question was more general, just like in terms of like actually like contextualizing all of these numbers. Um, I, I'm curious, like, do you think that the reason why there's like still a lot of business to scale is, well, I know that like HSH obviously like, isn't responsible for everything, but do you think like in order to like do all the work that you guys want to do, I know you mentioned that like you're like kind of never done, but do you think that's like, in terms of like, do you think that's because like people don't know about your services or like, do you think it's because like people like aren't accessing your services or is it because guys like aren't receiving enough money from the city because I'm just wondering like what's like the intended like scale of the and like why do you think they're not reaching that in so, like what what are the reasons why you guys can't carry out the thing that you guys carry out? That's a good question and a very good question. And um, I think I'll get so change. I think to your question about what you want to do to do I think there's some pretty significant numbers that we go to the city. We estimate that we're going to have this for us as we can. And a lot of at least for my the reason why I think it's a lot of things that we could be on that decades of inequitable housing policies that can currently have possibly just not to So for the Bigger I think it's harder to imagine the world where that just stops, but simply being the And that's one of the things that I'm saying is really trying to stop the In terms of the and just in terms of like whether people know about this business, yeah, they're probably in terms of the linkage to the offering. But at its essence, the way that our system is set up is a way that it's consistent. We don't have enough housing, we don't have enough shipping, we don't have enough right now. And I would just add to you what Brendan just said about we don't have enough of everything. It is funding, but it's more than that. And especially in San Francisco, one of the biggest challenges we run into is real estate. 
it's not only finding the estate, but it's having a conversation with the community that will then host a program. And that seems to be getting harder and harder these days. And so when we say like, we would love your all support for our proposed acquisition of 1134 Wilson, it's because like, neighbors are really upset by the state of street conditions in San Francisco, and they have a hard time separating the solution from what they're seeing. Um, and so again, I, I would think that is one of the greatest challenges. And we need funding to do all of it, most definitely. And I think there's, as Linda said, there's some big systemic issues that, you know, some of which started in the 80s under Ronald Reagan, which we are really feeling the impacts of today in terms of shuttering a lot of our social services resources. And we're also dealing with event artists. I think there are things that are compounding some of what we see on the street that we have not quite figured out yet. Um, you know, I think we've had some systems in place for substance use treatment or for harm reduction, and that has changed a lot over the last few years with fentanyl and the streets. And so I think we are also trying to adapt our systems and our social workers and our resources to be able to really meet people where we are, where they are. But that's changed. And just, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, like, a quick follow-up question. I mean, I know that you mentioned, like, some solution could just be, like, more funding so that you guys could, like, expand your resources and also, like, more like will from different, like, organizations places that could, like have programs like all throughout the city but what do you guys think it will take from the city like if it's funding it's a political will but, like what do you guys think is like the biggest thing this economic and it is to spend I'm sure it's one of the things to do, but a lot of things again that are programs is because the number can't hire enough people in the teams to have the low paying jobs that they currently have. So to, to run successful programs and to scale up at the speed of the city. Over the last few years, we've had a pretty unprecedented community in the 3,000 since so funny. Expansion of uh, shelter, there's been all the changes to closing down COVID response shelters and standing up new ones. And it's been a huge expansion. I mean, it's been a ton of things. And I think overall, at HSH, even though we have stopped a couple hundred stops, we don't have to have a chance to do the and the community has just exploded. And the nonprofits, it's the same. And you probably all heard in the leadership in general and even others networking talks. It's hard to get workers and keep conditions going for the leaders. And I think we're really seeing that kind of stuff. Um, so we might have some solutions to that. But I always just thought that was another real meaningful, but makes it not just about how much time it gets. How can we actually make sure that we're Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I just had, I think that was excellent. You guys know, just had HSH last year and this year did an analysis both our housing and shelter programs and looked at what we think a floor wage should be for frontline staff, like these shelter monitors, housing monitors, front desk, janitorial, maintenance, maybe managers, and said to every nonprofit, we're going to increase your budget. So this is the lowest wage you could pay, and then you can add money on top of that. Because we want to make sure that people have a livable wage and that it's desirable to work with these nonprofits because 
cannot be successful if staff both in our department and those that we run our nonprofit partners don't have enough staff. And I would, I think it has been successful. We have seen and we are seeing that kind of roll out and get more staffing in. And I think it's kind of a larger question for the city on when we're looking at the services that are really the most critical and serve our most vulnerable populations. Like how are we as a city, not just the government, channeling funds into that and what do we need? Hear or hear from y'all like, on ways we can support the Wilson project. And just um, one of our VPPs this year was, you know, expanding, um, you know, services for teen youth and, you know, having another, you know, navigation center or like permanent housing like this um, for teen youth. So we're really great to, grateful to see this project and definitely would love to support in any ways that we can. Um, but thanks for the work that y'all do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having Thank us. You. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Program. Uh, I believe we're joined tonight by Eliska. Sorry if I'm saying the name wrong, and Gordon of the SFMTA Student Gaming Unit. Thanks for being here tonight. Hi, thank you for having us. My name is Eliska Ferdinand. I am the Security and Investigations Programs Manager with SFMTA, and uh, POP falls underneath my purview. I'm Gordon Wong. Sorry, I'm Gordon Wong. I'm the proof of payment manager. Perfect. Thank you guys both so much for uh, being here tonight. Um, did you have any um, like specific like presentations or like discussion that you wanted to have, or do you just want us to like jump into some questions that we may have for you? Oh, we have a presentation. I think Gordon's going to oh, try okay. to share your screen. Oh, great. I'm going to I'm going to try, but this is the first time we've used uh, WebEx, so. Can you see that? Don't Not sure. We don't no. see anything right now. Okay. I'm going to keep trying. Uh, let's see. Share. I think I got it. You can see it. You can see it? Okay, great. Yes. yes. All right. Okay. All right. So we've already introduced ourselves, so we're going to go to slide number two. I think there's something right over the... Hold on one second. Okay. So as far as security and investigations here at SFMTA, our entire um, section actually consists of four moving parts. 
And the first would be our video surveillance unit, which records and stores all video footage for SFMCA vehicles, subway stations, facilities for use in investigations and legal action. Um, once again, our proof of payment department, which ensures fair compliance on all SFMCA vehicles, subway stations, and bus stops and also our MTAP program, which provides community-based staff to minimize juvenile disturbance on SFMCA routes, vehicles, and bus stops. And lastly, we also have our contracted security company, which is currently Allied Security. So within the proof of payment program, we conduct fair inspection for fair compliance on SFMCA vehicles, bus stops, rails, platforms, and subway stations. Transit fare inspectors are responsible for checking fares on the transit system as well as providing customer service and assistance to transit riders. The department also supports special events like the San Francisco Giants and Golden State Warrior Games. Fare inspectors' presence uh, in the Muni system help deter fare evasion and security-related incidents. And currently, we operate underneath two shifts right now, which are Monday through Friday, from 6.30 a.m. to 3 p.m., which will be our first shift. And then our midday shift is from 12 p.m. to 8.30. In terms of proof of payment uh, in our overall department, SFMTA uh, launched the Fair Compliance Program, which was redesigned and implemented in December, uh, excuse me, December 1st, 2020. The redesign of the fair compliance approach complement our comprehensive fair programs. And the ultimate goal for this was to shift from a fair enforcement model to a compliance model, which allowed us to serve the public's needs by educating our riders on various fair programs, which they may qualify. The shift from enforcement to compliance allows us to educate customers on fair programs and increase our enrollment within those programs and also we provide up-to-date transit service information whenever possible, and we also support by assisting riders and operators while on the vehicle. In terms of the job functions, so in addition to our initial in-class training and also what we call field or on-the-job training, transit fare inspectors also um, experience additional trainings like emotional intelligence, suicide prevention, uh, mobile crisis response, human trafficking alert training, customer service training, de-escalation techniques, and also what we call PAC training, practical communication tools for safety and service. Excuse me. Um, and in terms of steps taken to avoid um, discriminatory practices in targeting marginalized groups, TFIs are deployed to a variety of different transit lines throughout the system monthly. Each day, uh, depending on our staffing levels, we assign fare inspectors from anywhere to four to eight transit lines. And those lines are assigned based on both qualitative and quantitative analysis used to develop the hybrid of a high and low line um, deployment. So basically what that means is, is in addition to um, assigning the transit lines, the goal is to make sure that we provide coverage on both high volume lines as well as low volume lines simultaneously. We review monthly data to measure and compare the disbursement of compliance efforts to ensure we are deploying in the most equitable manner. So um, a long time ago, years, years past, um, the deployment was set up a little bit differently, but ever since our redesign, we've really put in our best effort to make sure that we spread our coverage as evenly as possible. 
by doing um, a variety of different lines, and like I said, both high and low lines all in the same day. So that it doesn't appear as though we're trying to focus solely on lines that have the higher foot traffic, that typically do in fact have more higher fare evasion rates, but the goal is to make sure that we're seeing on as many lines as possible. So the spread, the spreading of coverage, oh sorry, yeah, you could go by, go past it. The spreading of coverage ultimately just allows us to uh, provide our services in a more equitable way. So as of right now, we still operate underneath the FEW Muni for All Youth program, and that consists of anyone 18 years and younger. Available to all 18 years and younger, regardless of household income level and residency, no application or proof of payment clipper card is required to ride Muni vehicles, with the exception of the cable cars. And this program is possible as a result of the San Francisco, excuse me, as a result of Mayor Breed's budget proposal for fiscal year 2022, which included a $2 million uh, fund for the program for 12 months. The program launched on August 15, 2021 initially in conjunction with the start to the 2021 through 2022 school year and continues to operate at right now through June 30th, 2024. Current free Muni for Youth program participants no longer need to carry their clipper cards with the pass or tap when boarding the vehicles with the exception of the cable car service. Proof of payment is not required for youth who appear to be 18 years or younger Youth 16 and above are encouraged to carry student ID or other forms of ID for age verification. Muni fares for regular service will also be waived for students enrolled in the San Francisco Unified School District English Learners and Special Education Service Program throughout, excuse me, through the age of 22. Uh, current free Muni for Youth participants can continue to use their clipper cards for free fares on, on the cable car or request a new cable car pass, which is also available for in San Francisco for youth ages 5 through 18, regardless of household income. And youth 4 and younger, they ride free. So that, for the most part, sums up um, the presentation that we have that goes over just the overall makeup of our program and how we typically um, go about conducting fair compliance. I know that you all initially referred to it as fair enforcement, but um, that's something that we definitely want to shift away from in terms of that terminology, and we use fair compliance for the reasons that we mentioned, because um, that shift really allowed room and opportunity to be able to spread as much knowledge as possible about the different fair programs that riders may be eligible for, eligible for number one, and also the goal is to make sure that, you know, people are in compliance. Now, don't get me wrong, if a person is found to not be in compliance and they're unable to provide proof of payment upon inspection, then I guess that's when you would suggest that the fair enforcement piece will come in play, but ultimately the goal is to make sure that riders maintain in compliance. So with that said, we'd like to open it up to any questions that you all may have. Thank you. Just want to start. Yeah, I'm happy to start. I'm just wondering a little bit more about the actual process fair compliance and how it intersects with QB free meaning for youth. Um, when officers are like on buses and you know, checking people's um, payment, is it is it just solely like a parent space whether they think that there's a chance that their that their rider might be 18 years or younger? And what do they do if they um, you know are confident the person is 
18 member, but person claims to be. Um, what did they do if they're confident that um, riders above the age of 18, but they claim to not be? And how does that work if there's no age requirement? You want to take that, Gordon, or would you like me to respond? I can. Um, sorry, the, um, your, your question, you're coming in and out, so I can't really hear what you're asking. I think I heard him. I, I'll take it then. Okay. I believe, just so I can paraphrase, I believe what you're asking is, is if a person is on board a muni vehicle, is the process that we approach them and try to verify whether or not they are 18 years of age and younger? Is that the first part of the question? Um, that was part of it. I was just wondering how that works because you don't get if you're 18 or under. Okay, your mic is going a bit in and out, but if I'm hearing you correctly, then yes, when we board a muni vehicle and we recognize that in the midst of fair, fair inspection, if a person doesn't have, typically what happens is, is when we board a vehicle and the announcement is made um, for riders to be able to show that they're in compliance, typically what happens is, is people immediately begin to show their clipper cards and their tag with the HCR3 machine, and it's immediately confirmed that they've paid their fare. In the event that we encounter a youth, more often than not, they will either immediately disclose that they're a youth, and depending on the setup, for example, typically if a person is appears to be very youthful, like you said, based off of appearance for the most part. If they appear to be in elementary school or something of that nature, then when they make that statement, then fair enough, they're a part of the Muni, free Muni for Youth program. However, it is sometimes difficult to be able to determine whether or not a person is a youth. So this is why in the slide that we went over, it states per our Muni website that they do, and we do encourage people 16 years and older to carry some form of an ID to be able to verify that they do in fact qualify for the program. Now in the event that someone does not have that, then the conversation will continue and more often than not, they're more than willing to explain to us, well not explain, but for example, disclose their date of birth. And once they do that, then we move forward. So the goal is to just make sure that writers are in compliance and if you qualify under the free Muni for Youth program, then we're absolutely excited about that because the conversation ends there. And also our other riders that are on the coach that, for example, may be an adult or right just above that cusp to qualify for the free Muni for Youth program, appreciate that, you know, we go above and beyond. And sometimes we ask additional questions to get more information to make sure that everyone is in compliance. Because as you could only imagine, if some people are paying their fare and it appears as though others are not, the minute other people realize, oh, they're part of the free Muni for Youth program, it really begins to silence the outside noise and everybody understands that we're just trying, the goal is ultimately just to make sure that writers are in compliance. Thank you. You're welcome. I had a question. Um, I guess um, it's interesting because the, um, the SMTA's like um, proof of payment or fair inspection, um, whatever you want to call it, fair compliance, um, like it's very similar to like programs in other agencies such as BART has their like um, fair uh, inspectors and like those fair inspectors um, wear like a, a body worn camera um, that you might see like on police officers or like other you know, security services. And and munis do not. Is there like a reason, but beyond like funding, that that's not happening? 
Um, so I don't know what happened to the camera. I can no longer see you guys, but I do see your, oh, there it is. I see your picture. So in terms of the agency standard on that, I wouldn't be able to respond on behalf of that choice, but I would say that I would imagine it has to do with the fact that BART, in that capacity, they're a law enforcement agency, and we are not. So in addition to BART providing transit services, they also have a law enforcement component where those fare inspectors are often coupled with, with excuse me, BART PD. So perhaps if in fact they wear a body camera, which I'm not aware of the fact that they do, but if they do, perhaps it is coupled with that because they're also um, working parallel with the law enforcement agency. But I can't speak to that factually. I know that we do not because not only are our transit fare inspectors not law enforcement officers, they're transit fare inspectors, and they're also not security guards. I remember that you mentioned something about security guards at other facilities, or excuse me, other places wearing body cam, but our transit fare inspectors are not security guards either. They're, they are transit fare inspectors specifically. But it could be helpful to have them still wear body cameras regardless you know, whether or not they are law enforcement or security, you know, just so, you know, if there was any, you know, question in regards to their, you know, conduct, that it could be, you know, investigated um, if they have a body-worn camera, whereas if there is no camera, it's, it's just a he said, she said situation. Well, I would say that on all of our muni platforms, as well as on our trains and buses, there are cameras for that purpose, the purpose of surveillancing whatever is necessary to be reviewed at that time. So in the event that there was an incident that were um, that needed to be investigated, our video surveillance unit would pull video and be able to assess that situation. So I don't think that it's necessary to say, well, I wouldn't suggest that a body camera be necessary because we do have camera um, ability. But I mean, in terms of the agency's overall decision about that, I wouldn't be able to speak to that. Okay, I understand. And I guess um, another question is like, how do you inform riders? You know, Muni is one of the only systems in the nation that allows riders, and I think it's a great thing to board through any any door. You can board through the rear doors. Um, but, you know, may, many people may not have seen a system like that before. So how do you ensure that riders still know when they are, you know, boarding through the back doors before they ever, you know, come into contact with, uh, you know, fair compliance, fair enforcement, whatever you want to call it, personnel? Um, that fair, fair payment is required. So there's announcements made throughout um, the ride when you're on a coach that make mention of it, but also when our fare inspectors are on board a bus, they make sure that they have conversations with riders about fare compliance. So there are signs, there's signage posted letting you know that you need to have paid your fare, there are announcements made, but like you said, all door boarding is absolutely available and open to everyone. There are clipper card readers on more than just the front of the bus. They're also on the back and also in the middle of our longer 60-foot coaches. So I don't think that typically or what I'll say is, is that the issue is not necessarily that people don't know that they have to pay if they board a rear door. They're aware of that via the different reminders that are already set in place and available to them. And in the event that they're not, then our fare inspectors absolutely provide that customer service function to make them aware of that. But by the time they're already in contact with the fare import or fare compliance officer, fare compliance, what, what's a good term for that? So they're called transit fare inspectors. TFI right. is the acronym. Okay. 
Okay, so when the, if a person comes into a into contact with the transit fare inspector and they're not aware that it's they're required to pay, they could be subject to a one hundred twenty five dollar citation, even if they were unaware. That's so, correct because when you board the muni vehicle, so whether you board again in the front of the vehicle or in the rear of the vehicle, it is your responsibility to know that you have to pay a fare. So again, now whether or not you get on the back door, you can still pay a fare via the back door, but everyone is expected to be in compliance once they're on the vehicle and accepting the ride. Okay, that, that makes sense. I, the reason why I ask is because I know for a, for a period of time when fare enforcement was reintroduced, there were the announcements like audio that you referenced, and many of the buses do have little stickers um, on the doors that, you know, have the little, you know, like check if you're paying like with transfer or clipper and then board through the front if you're paying cash. But something that I've noticed on the, the new light rail vehicles and other newer vehicles that are entering the fleet is that they lack those decals and uh, the audio announcements are no longer played. So I am just uh, very concerned that, you know, many people could be unaware of the fact that they're even required to pay. Um, before they they board, I don't expect you to necessarily have a, a response to that. That's more of a observation. But I guess um, just another um, question is like uh, something I've noticed also is that there's new clipper readers being installed on many of the the buses, and a lot of those will sometimes be out of service. Like it'll be broken or the, the cash fare boxes will be broken or operators will simply, you know, waive customers on board because, I don't know, maybe they're late on their schedule, who knows. Uh, <clears throat> how does, how does uh, transit fare inspectors deal with those situations? And so, and so, sorry, Leslie, I, I can answer that. So, uh, we have teams of fare inspectors board the buses or, or vehicle, or LRV, and we have one fare inspector that goes to the front, that fare inspector will talk to the bus driver or operator and ask if any anything's wrong with the vehicle such as a broken um, broken cash box or a, uh, if the clipper machines are down so you know if we get that information we pass along he passes along, he or she will pass along to his team and we don't sign anyone on that particular bus right so that, that that's how we do it but you know if, if the clippers are down we expect people to pay cash but at that point, if a fair inspector does an inspection and the person says, I don't have cash, I have a clipper card though, we can inspect a clipper card and see if there's actual funds on the clipper card. And at that point, the fair inspector will have to make a decision either to cite the individual or not based on, you know, the reasoning. So just just because you don't have fare doesn't mean it's an automatic ticket. There are extenuating circumstances sometimes why someone doesn't have a ticket or if they're like, for example, if they're new to San Francisco, or they're tourists from another country, they might not be familiar with the muni system or how fare operates in San Francisco. So they do get a warning or they're encouraged to go to the fare box if they haven't paid. Yes. So I hope that answers your question. So just to piggyback on what Gordon said, I, I agree. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are different instances where a fare inspector would encounter someone who does not have valid proof of payment and the whole overall premise is to provide as much education as possible, all while getting them in compliance. Um, but as you can imagine, you know, ultimately you're supposed to be in compliance once you're on the vehicle and accepting of the ride. 
Or for example, if you're in a muni paid area where you don't enter, for example, from the outside, or if you entered, you entered on a train where you could have paid. So there's a lot of different circumstances um, that could lead to a, a, a more in-depth conversation with the transit fare inspector. But the goal is to make sure that we give out as much information as we can and with the hopes of making sure that the person can become in compliance right away. And um, in the event that we have to issue a citation, then staff will do that. That is a part of their job. Of course, no one is happy when they are issued a citation. But there is also, and even in, even in the case if you're issued a citation, the fair inspector goes over the citation, explains, you know, how a person can then move forward and protest the citation if throughout all the conversation, if they feel like the citation is still unjust, but they did not meet the requirement in order to totally avoid the citation, then there's still an opportunity for them to be able to speak to their side in terms of how this came about to where they issued a ticket. Yeah, I recognize a lot of um, what you're saying today, and I think that, you know, it's great that that's the, you know, that's the procedure on paper. You know, when I've, you know, observed, you know, fair, fair compliance, fair transit, fair inspectors in action, you know, I think, you know, sometimes that does occur and that's great. And other times, you know, the citation is not explained to the person or the person, you know, doesn't, you know, speak English, you know, and they don't understand the reason that they're being cited or various you know, or the, you know, the fair inspector, transit fair inspectors don't have the little, you know, like cards that explain, you know, the different, you know, like discount programs that they can enroll in. So I think it's it's very, it's very great what you talk about in in theory, but I'm just, I'm just curious how you ensure that that actually happens in reality. Um, and I think one of the ways would be with, you know, bottom board cameras, but I, I don't know, I'm just curious, how do you ensure that that's actually all of this, you know, redesigned, you know, uh, fair compliance is actually the reality in the field. I would say that ultimately, um, in any case, there are possibilities to where everything doesn't go perfectly. However, our fair inspectors are absolutely invested in making sure that they do the job the proper way. And I think that as you explained, there may be a time or then there may be times where a person does not, one of the fair inspectors, for example, they may not speak the language of the person that is unfortunately receiving the citation, but they do that the best that they can with the tools that they have to be able to explain to them what number they can call by referencing the back of the citation to be able to get those translated services. Now, don't get me wrong, that is very difficult to do. but I do know that the ultimate effort is to make sure that a person doesn't just walk away completely confused. That's not the goal. The goal is to try and go above and beyond to give the information so that the person knows what to do next. It is not always easy and it is not always done perfectly, but they do do their best with, within the circumstances that they're in in the moment. So when you say, how do we ensure that that's always happening? In all honesty, I wouldn't be able to tell you that we can ensure that it is always happening, but I will tell you that with our recurring trainings, our in-house conversations and briefings and meetings, we make it a point to go over the processes and we have full engagement from our fair inspectors that are out there actually doing the work. And the feedback <clears throat> we receive also from other writers that have witnessed similar interactions 
um, speak to the overall work that we're doing. We've had a lot of good recognition about the efforts that are put in from people that are not even a part of the actual citation interaction. And believe it or not, it may sound odd, but there are even times when the same person that's receiving a ticket will thank a fair inspector because although they're not happy about the ticket, they did leave well informed. So, I mean, we will continue to, excuse me, make the stride toward being better and I'm not saying that it is perfect by any means, but the effort is being put in on a regular basis. And the feedback that we receive regularly speaks to that. Thank you. Did you have a question? Yeah, I mean, just like bouncing off some of Kaden's questions, um, I was just wondering, I know that like SFMT fair enforcement is like very different from like SFPD, but it, it's like similar in the, in the case that like you have to like approach individuals also, like, let me know if you can't hear me, but you have to, like, approach individuals, and I know that there could be, like, a lot of situations where people are, like, very upset or, like, angry, and they won't, like, respond calmly, even when the fair enforcement officer is, like, trying their best. Um, but I'm just wondering, like, are fair enforcement officers, like, trained in de-escalation and, like, in the type of communication that you guys were talking about? Um, because, like, I know that, like, each individual person may have like their own goals when working with people. So I'm just wondering, like, is there like something that's like tying all of you guys together when it comes to like your goals for how you want to like approach the situations calmly? Yes. So transit fare inspectors, they do um, have de-escalation. Excuse me, de-escalation. I'm having some tongue twisters. Uh, trainings and. Throughout those trainings, we talk about all different methods and styles of communication. As you can imagine, you know, there is not one particular style to do the job, but the goal is to make sure that everyone is communicating effectively, as patiently as possible, and sometimes even that looks different depending on the situation and trying to get on and off of a coach. But De-escalation is absolutely important. That's that, again, that is the goal, to make sure that we don't heighten the situation. Now, again, that does not mean that things cannot escalate. If a person, like you said, if we're walking throughout the coach asking for valid fair media, and sometimes people just don't even want to be talked to at all, don't want to be approached, don't want to have to show any form of proof of payment. But when you're on an SFMTA vehicle and a fair inspector is coming on, they have a job to do, and they have to make sure that those that are riding are in compliance. And again, just like you said, you know, people may not like that. They may have an issue with that. But the opposing side is, is that the people that are paying, the taxpayers, the people that are paying their money, they want to make sure that other people are paying as well. So it's a twofold situation. You know, the goal is it's a balance of trying to make sure that we're keeping things running smoothly along with, you know, trying to not interfere with on-time performance, but making sure that we don't have a plethora of people that are not in fair compliance, and then you have other people that are paying that feel like, you know, no one's even trying to verify whether or not other people have paid. So it's a balancing act, and it does require a lot of communication and sometimes it for the most part it goes smooth but there are those times where a person just doesn't want to be bothered and the fair inspector definitely knows how to defuse a situation 
but it depends because at different times, you know, there are times when you do have to continue to engage with someone to a certain extent, you know, to try and get compliance or try to confirm that they're already in compliance. Do you have a question? Uh, yeah, I was wondering if you lose, um, how would a compliance inspector deal with someone who's not mentally stated? Like, uh, I've noticed TRNS is kind of down uh, the red lane. There's not many uh, ways to deal with something that's not capable of understanding uh, if they are able to pay the. So I think I understood what you said. How do ultimately the question is how would a fair inspector interact with someone who isn't mentally stable or who doesn't appear to be mentally stable? Am I correct? Hello? Yes, that is correct. Oh, okay. So well first I'll say that ultimately the fair inspector performs the job in the way that they're trained to perform it without attempting to determine whether or not someone is appears to be mentally unstable. Ultimately, when you're providing equitable and fair coverage, you're doing the job the same way that you would if you were interacting with someone who appears to be mentally stable, because we don't want to pass judgment just based on an outward appearance. But as you can imagine, ultimately, when you have people that have been working out with the public, especially in our San Francisco area, that have encountered all walks of life. The goal is to try to keep things as calm as possible. So there are times where if you interact with someone, and I mean it is just going getting completely out of hand, then you have to, like in any other situation, know when to retreat, you know, and know when to say when, because you're not going to, at that point, come to any resolve. But that those things are, again, hard to judge, but fair inspectors in the midst of their training, we go over all of these different things. Well, not me, for say, but, for example, whomever is facilitating the training with their tips and tools on how to handle situations like this, all of those things are a part of the training. But, again, with, in, in full transparency, I'll say that the job it is a hard job you know it, it truly is and it may to some look easy but the job is really a hard job and i'll say that just to be a little bit more transparent and give you a piece about me you know although i am the programs manager now i was actually a fair inspector in the past you know in the past my background i started off as a transit operator um i then moved on to the transit fair inspector program or the proof of payment program and was a fair inspector. I was a fair inspector supervisor. So I say this coming from a place of having actually done the job and experienced all of these different elements of it. And the honest truth is, is that the goal is to take all of the training that's laid out for you and really know how to use your best judgment in trying to apply the different techniques and tools that you're given, you know, throughout these different trainings but it is no easy task and we will not always get it right but the goal is to try and minimize negative interactions and really show up and be of a customer service 
uh, response and really be there to actually help people. And again, that's coming. That's 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 a little bit of my personal spill, but that's just coming from someone who has done these different jobs literally at length. So I feel like I could just share that with you and speak to that authentically. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Thank you. And. Um... Just one last question. We really appreciate you uh, being here today. But I'm just curious. So, like, what is the like legal authority that, since you know, you did mention earlier that you know, proof of payment is not, or transit fare inspectors are not, you know, law enforcement personnel. Like, do they actually have the legal authority to, like, um, you know, detain or like ID somebody in order to issue a citation? Like, if a person were to see a, you know, fare inspector that approaches them and they were to walk away from that, you know, inspector, what's, is there any recourse? Is there any, you know, what, what's like the, the legality of that? So, Gordon, I'll let you speak to the overall qualifications in terms of their ability to issue citations. Sure. The uh, Director of Transportation uh, authorized fare inspectors to issue violations of the San Francisco Transportation Code as in fair enforcement and uh, passenger misconduct. Now, as for your question regarding uh, what happens when someone walks away from a fair inspector, uh, yes, it is our policy that we do not, our fair inspectors do not detain people physically. In, in the state of California, if someone was to commit infraction in front of you, in your presence, you can detain that person to write a citation or whatever you need to do. It's the same process as a parking ticket or a jaywalking citation. You don't go to jail for that. It's just a fine. That's all it is. So I hope that, I hope that answers your question. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Is there any last questions from commissioners? Otherwise, if not, uh, we really thank you both for uh, being here tonight um, and answering all of our questions. It was really uh, helpful to learn more about the transit fair uh, inspector program and fair compliance, especially as it relates to young people and free money for all youth. So we really appreciate your time tonight and thank you both. Thank, thank you. you. And I just would like to say in closing, you know, I understand some of the terminology that you all uh, reference, but, you know, I ask that you help us echo that, you know, our staff members are transit fair inspectors. They are not officers. They are not, you know, again, because as you all can imagine, the tonality of certain terms can immediately shift the form of an interaction. And the reason I'm making focus in, in highlighting that is because the goal is to make sure that people identify us more in alignment with what it is that we actually do. So I just ask that, you know, you all help us also in spreading that when we talk about fair compliance. And again, I know fair enforcement is an older term that people are familiar with, but it's still, to me, and again, this is my own Eliska Ferdinand opinion, coming from someone that has done the job, you know, when you use those different terms, it just, again, it, 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 it makes an appearance of a much stronger and just hardcore interaction that you know, that, that's not necessarily the image that we want to give out. We really want people to understand that a fair inspector can really be a resource 
and really be a service support person for anybody that's throughout our transit system that may not just have a question about fair compliance, but just in general, they are very knowledgeable. And I don't think that a lot of people really get to experience that piece because a lot of the interactions are very short-lived and very brief. It's about getting on, not disrupting transit service and allowing people to, okay, prove that they're in compliance and get off. But our fair inspectors do a lot of great work that people don't get to see. Things that are just, you know, I wish people got to see more of because it really would help with the idea of what it, what the overall real mission is. And the mission is service, just to provide good service. Don't get me wrong, there is a difficult job element that is um, primary, but it's more than that. And I just hope that the takeaway is that. That the, nobody wants to be the one to always have to issue out the penalty. It comes with the job, but our fair inspectors do all that they can to show that they offer more than that. So, well, thank you so much. Yeah, I, I don't know. I would just say I think like sort of some, and I guess you know, there's always concerns about you know media and PR. But you know, I, I know I, I read a Chronicle article about this earlier this year, and you know they did reach out to the SFMTA, and they I, I believe they asked to you know perhaps you know ride along with fair enforcement off or fair fair compliance um, inspectors, and um, the, it was declined uh, by the SFMTA. So I, I think you know maybe maybe it's not inviting the news media, but you know maybe it's you know having you know some of the SFMTA communications people come out with the you know fair inspectors and you know make a little you know video or blog post or something about it to really show that to the public because you know I I, I agree with you I think there there is a lot of you know uh, different views out there in the public and you know if you really are you know looking to you know change that I think um, that could be a, a good method of of doing that but. Really appreciate your time tonight again, and um, thank you. It's it's really interesting, especially to hear from you with you know like your personal like experience out there. So we really do appreciate that. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay. Perfect. So. I guess before we move on, is there any last discussion on this item? Oh, well, I guess on either of the presentations. We're about to discuss more of like HSH and the legislation referred, but I don't know. I thought it was interesting. It maybe wasn't like the most uh, productive conversation uh, that we had with her. Um, but I, I, I think part of the reason that I really asked for this is I'm going to be writing uh, most likely a resolution either at the end of this term or sometime into next term in regards to fair enforcement and fair compliance, excuse me. Uh, and just because, you know, even with the free uni for all youth program, this is just still an issue that really impacts a lot of people, you know, transitional youth and others who just, um, don't qualify, or even if they are youth and they, you know, payment isn't required, they, they have to come into contact with um, people, um, fair, fair inspectors. So I think it was at least insightful, and now we can say we did our, our outreach and heard, heard from them, whatever it is that they had to say. So it was, it was, it was good to hear from them, and to hear from someone that has been a fair inspector. 
understand that semantic element of that. Well, yes, enforcement officers, they want to draw distinctions between themselves and the police because they don't necessarily have those like actual enforcement capabilities. But either way, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that presentation was very productive just because, like, she was kind of saying everything that, like, a mission statement of a website would say. Um, and I think it's important for them to acknowledge the problems of care enforcement and then to be upfront about this. So I guess if Commissioner Miller would be working on the presentation, I'd probably switch because um, this sort of thing we've worked on with artists. Um, and also, like, it's a new thing. Perfect. Cool. Any further discussion before we take public comment and then move on? Hearing none, can we check for any public comment on either of the presentations for item six? Perfect. So with that, we'll close the public comment and could we please call item seven? Yes, item number seven is legislation heard. Still. Uh, Two three zero five one nine, which is a hearing with the Department of Justice for Great. So I think this is um, in regards to the plan that we just heard about from um, HSH, the um, Home by the Bay um, that's coming up, and there will be a um, hearing in regards to this uh, that was called by Supervisor Mandelman. Um, so I'll just read here. Um, basically, um, uh, I'm going to read this. Hearing on the Department of uh, Homelessness and Support of Housing Strategic Plan, specifically to hear how the department describes its approach to homelessness and the impact that the strategic plan's implementation will have on street conditions over the next five years, and calling for the Department of Homelessness and Support of Housing to report. Please catalog and map all beds in the system, both temporary and permanent, with the number of openings or waitlists for each program. Also provide a more detailed description of the coordinated entry system. How many people are waiting for housing in the system? How many people do not qualify for permanent housing? Okay, so those are some of the questions from the supervisor. And I guess something that we normally do with hearings, uh, obviously, you know, we could write anything we, we have on the matter, but also submitting questions, I think, can generally be helpful with hearings. So, do people have any discussion or questions, especially um, stemming after the presentation we just had HSH or just other questions? Like, where did we, Ms. Gray, I see their goals, where did you think they are, where do they think they are on the feasibility of the Yes. The housing in the next five years because you know they acknowledge that finding real estate, the process of buying it and then trying to get neighbors to accommodate is, is so difficult. So like what what particularly I think we want to make sure that they feel confident setting out the goal and saying we try but neighbors or whoever else just gets in the I mean, for, for the goals that they had that were like more like conceptual, like you know, like racial and economic, and those like that, um, those make sense to me. But as for the goals that like have numbers, kind of like what Commissioner Adair was talking about, like 
do they know that they can like achieve those or are they kind of just based on like they will be able to achieve? Like, are there like resources for them to be able to carry out all of that? Okay, so some questions I wrote down so far are how will they overcome unorganized uh, communities of like labor opposition and funding uh, and funding like monetary obstacles to implementing um, the housing services described? And um, how will the more general goals of the plan be measured? Progress towards those specific numbers, or you know, if they're not numbers, like how are they measuring like their decreasing um, inequities? We have other question. We'll also this will go to the full commission, so I'm sure other commissioners will have questions that they can add in. Then also, if anybody wants to make a motion to um, either. You know, recommend this with support, you know, of the most neutral position, the hearing uh, to the full commission for our questions. Definitely happy to take that motion to support questions and questions. Cool. Perfect. And did we want to add, I guess I could also add, um, but do people have any ideas for like questions specifically related to youth in this plan? I guess we want to think about well, no questions are just mine right now, but it'd be great just making sure that you have these permanent supportive housing options and you know, how would we assess things. Uh, 
So essentially following our um, Vision Zero resolution earlier this year, um, which identified automated speed enforcement as one of the main um, tools to addressing um, speeding, which is one of the largest contributing factors to both um, the cause of collisions as well as um, dramatically increasing the likelihood of um, a fatality or serious injury if the vehicle was speeding. Um, there was a bill, um, AB uh, 645, um, that was brought by Assemblymember Friedman this year, and it just passed through the, um, I believe it's the House Appropriate, maybe it's the Senate Appropriations, um, and it's gotten, there's been similar bills in the past, but it's gotten really far this year, and I just wanted to um, send this letter of support, supporting this bill as it's something that the Youth Commission has already called for in its uh, Vision Zero resolution, and just, um, yeah, basically um, support a pilot program for automated speed enforcement in um, municipalities, including um, San Francisco. And I will not be there um, at the next full uh, Youth Commission meeting when um, this uh, support letter will be presented. I believe, um, uh, Commissioner Wayne, you have agreed to help me. <laughs> yes, I will. Uh, but if you all have any questions right now um, just about it, that would be great, just so we can be prepared in advance of the full commission. And it occurs in Cool. Do we want a motion to recommend this um, to the full commission? I know that's something that's been done in other committees. And I think our own committee passed support letters. So I do that. Motion to recommend Great. So we have a motion by Commissioner Adair, seconded by Commissioner Wing, uh, to recommend the support letter uh, for AB 645, speed safety cameras to the full youth commission. Uh, is there any public comment? Seeing none, uh, is there any discussion? Hearing none, um, all in favor, please say aye. Any opposed, say nay. Cool. So with that, um, this item is recommended to the full youth commission. And can we please call item number nine? Yes, item number nine is announcements including community events. Great. I know uh, another legislation report that didn't be given time for this agenda. Um, we were potentially going to just discuss how it was going to get the next um, full youth commission. Staff did want to provide a little bit more context. Yes. So this one is specific for housing. So it is pretty important. Um, and this also makes a significant ordinance change that's being uh, recommended. Um, so the file says it's an ordinance amend amending the planning code to create a family housing opportunity special use district. The planning code to authorize up to four units individual lots, up to 12 units on merged lots in RH1, which is residential house for family districts, and group housing in RH1 districts for eligible projects in the special use district. It also amends to and color to exempt eligible projects in this special use district from certain height, open space, dwelling units, and rear yard setback requirements, certain 
conditional authorization. Yeah, conditional use authorizations, the application requirements, and also uh, amends to authorize eligible projects to qualify for condos or uh, existing dwelling units to constitute projects. And then other changes include requiring new dwellings or housing units constructed to pursuant to the density limit exemption. Amending the zoning map to show that dish, that new districts and affirming the planning department's determination under CEQA um, and making findings of consistency with the general plan other city water policies. So there's a lot of like housing people as well. Like basically they want to create a new district to be specifically for family housing. Um which just within one unit or one unit lots for multiple. Great. So on the next Yeah, I don't think we're really uh, able to discuss this further here today, but um, we'll definitely just be aware of it and that it'll be at the next um, full year commission. So I really encourage you all to um, look into it further uh, if you are curious more, and then also just come up with any you know questions, recommendations, and positions for the full year commission. I unfortunately will not be there, but. Uh, I'm sure you all will do great. And then forward it to so you can look it up but in the next two weeks before the next Yay. Do people have any other announcements or community events? I'll just point out that um, Sunday Streets um, for this year just started recently. I think the first one was um, this past Sunday. Um, and that there will be further events to come. I think it was potentially discussed that the Youth Commission may try to table at some of them. So um, definitely come out to those in the future, especially um, different ones in your district. And uh, I think you can find more information online about that. Do people have other community events or announcements? Hearing none, I think we can go and call item 10. Yes, I remember tonight is adjourned. Great. So this meeting is adjourned at 7.14 p.m. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.